Hello, and welcome to the podcast of Emmanuel Assemblies of God in Knoxville, Tennessee. We're so glad you've taken the time to listen. If you're ever in our area, we invite you to join us for one of our worship services. For times and locations, please visit at EmmanuelAG.com. If I were to walk in here with a stack of hundred dollar bills, would I make it across the room? <laughs> That's the question. <laughs> could I set them down and turn my head for a minute? Huh? Yeah, I could. I could. Let's say I had a hundred of them. What would that be? Ten thousand dollars. Ten thousand dollars. Hundred hundred dollars, right? Be a hundred hundreds. Ten thousand dollars. Let's let's say I have ten thousand dollars and I come and I give it to somebody. The reactions of receiving that money would be really different across this room, wouldn't it? Some people, you know, might be desperate praying for that money and they need it because they're three three months late and they're about to get kicked out of their house and ten thousand dollars be like, Thank you, God, you know. Some people might just jump up and run around the room. Some people might cry and raise their hands. Others would be like, You're kidding, right? And he's gonna stare there in disbelief. But the reactions would be as varied as the people in this room. Because we're all different, right? Everybody is different. <laughs> I've been preaching for several weeks about Emmanuel, meaning God is with us, the presence of God. I like that song, The Bridge, and the last song we did, which says, let us become more aware of your presence. Let us experience the glory. Let's become more aware of something that is already here. God's presence is with us. Amen. And we acknowledge his presence with us. But I find when we give it attention and we start expecting things, we start experiencing it even deeper, even more tangible. And, you know, I believe that's God's will for us, to have a tangible, living connection with Him. Mm. Right? I mean, we know what it says in the book. Remember, I think, was it last week I was talking about when I met Rim Kim, um, we were, you know, had a distance relationship. I'm in here and she's in India. I mean, we figured it was almost as geographically as far apart as you could be. If she had just moved a few miles to China or something, it would have been as far apart as we could be. So texts, emails, Facebook, all these Skype conversations. But the purpose of that was not to have a relationship with my computer screen. It was to have a relationship with the person on the other end of that computer screen. And we have the Word of God, and it says He is with us. But the purpose of him saying he is with us is so that we can believe that person who wrote that and actually enjoy his presence. Amen. Amen? Mm -hmm. So I've been speaking about you know, the glory of God that was on Adam when he created him. And then later the glory of God that followed the, not followed, actually led the uh, children of Israel through the wilderness and into the Red Sea actually fought for them. And then I talked about, you know, at some point they built that tabernacle, that tent, and the glory of God, which was free to roam around the desert, came into a specific geographical spot. And for a purpose of God's revelation, God confined His presence, the understanding of His presence, because God's everywhere. We know that God lives, does not live in temples made with hands. He can't be confined to a space, but He put His fire and His glory and His presence in that tent for a specific reason. And then later, the, the temple. And when that glory came into that tabernacle, it said the glory of God filled the tent, and Moses could not enter the tent. And when the, tab the presence of God entered the temple later, it says the priests could not stand to minister. Uh, they were actually given 
the word of God, the law of God, and they said they had to perform these sacred ritual duties, and they couldn't even stand because God just said, I'm going to take over here. His presence came in, and they're on their, they're on their face on the floor Amen. because of the glory and the presence of God. But we know God doesn't live in temples, so why did God teach the Israelites about his presence through the temple? Well, the reason was it was setting the stage for Jesus to come. The temple was a signpost pointing to something that was coming. As long as you're driving to Nashville, you see signs, Nashville, 100 miles, 50 miles, 30 miles, and so on. You know where you don't see a sign that says Nashville Zero? You don't need a sign in Nashville that says Nashville Zero because you're in Nashville, right? Jesus came, and now he is carrying the glory of God in his person. They shall call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. So the presence of God now is on Jesus. Jesus is a walking, talking temple basically. Wherever he did, he was doing the things that you should have gone to the temple to get. They were so mad at him. You can't forgive sins out here on the street. That's the priest's job. And don't do it on the Sabbath day besides. I mean, from our perspective, the Sabbath day would be a great day to forgive sins, wouldn't it? Amen. But not, not for them. Were, you're messing up the temple program. And Jesus is saying, I'm here. The temple's irrelevant. It's not necessary. It was pointing to me. Come to me and have life. Amen? And we went on, and we looked at the early church. And you remember when the 120 believers were in that upper room, and that presence of God came in on them, and the fire was on them, and the glory of God, and they were, heard that sound like a rushing wind, and they were speaking in different languages that they didn't know. And the presence of God now is on the church. And we talked about that too. There's several verses in the Bible that says, you are the temple of God. You are living stones being fit together, a temple for God. And some verses would imply that you as an individual are the temple of God, which means you carry the glory the way Jesus did. You carry the presence of God. But also it implies that us collectively are being fit together as living stones, a place for the habitation of God. And you know, we can... I, I really didn't plan on doing that for more than a week or two, but it just stayed so real over the last month or so that uh, we just kept preaching it, and we started experiencing it. You get what you preach, right? You get what you believe for. You know? So let's, let's pray about what we're going to preach next. <laughs> let's preach about salvation and healing, because and, we're going to get what we're anticipating, right? And so... So the glory of God came into the temple. Now, why is it important? The reason that's important is because we're actually supposed to be doing the same things that they did in the Bible. We're supposed to be laying on hands, healing sick, raising the dead, um, carrying the presence of God everywhere we go. Jesus said that you will receive power after the Holy Ghost comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. It's an empowerment to be a witness to this world. It's very important that we go there. And we do what he said. Now God said that he would put, he would put his spirit, pour out his spirit on all flesh. Okay? Flesh just means in this context, people. We're flesh. We have bodies. And just like each of us would respond different to receiving that $10,000. I'd be very happy. <laughs> each, as each of us would respond different, we all respond differently to the Holy Spirit when he's present in the room. Some of us, I didn't see anybody running, but 
I've been in churches where they've run because <laughs> the Spirit of God's on them and they've reacted. Some cried. For me, last Sunday when we had when we had that time of prayer and, and Reen Kim was praying here and, and I was up I mean I was I was fighting back tears. That's what it was doing to me. I held it together for you guys, but if I'd been alone in my house, I'd have just let it go. And I know a lot of you guys have felt it and sensed it and were responding in different types of prayer and worship. Because we're different. We respond differently. We'll respond differently uh, to various moves of the Spirit. And you know, the Bible does say that everything should be done decently and in order. But I want to let you know something. Before the service Sunday, actually as I was preparing for it on Saturday, I knew we were going to have a time of prayer. I knew we were going to have people come forward and that we would have a time of prayer. So I started figuring it out how I was going to do it in my mind. And on Wednesday night, um, what we would do is we would preach and then we'd turn this camera off and we would have a time of prayer together where we'd have some privacy and we could pray as loud or crazy as we wanted and pray about whatever we wanted and didn't have to worry about um, you know people listening in who we don't know. But uh, So that's what I was planning on Sunday. But I'll tell you what, when, when God showed up, it was just the most natural thing to flow into what God had already showed me was going to happen in the service. So I just want you to know, he didn't disrupt the service. He enhanced the service. You know, he took us, he, he made it a lot smoother than fighting, saying, anybody, if you really need have any, come on up. Come on up, third, third call, last call, come on. You know, it, people were, were ready to respond. We had faith. Our expectancy was, was high. We were ready to see, receive something from God. I don't want to quench the Spirit of God. I want to do everything in order, but we're going to grow in this. We're going to get really good at this. We're going to get really good at, you know, taking the presence of God and, and responding to it in a way that blesses the church and blesses the people who are among us. We, we can learn. But what I don't want to do is shy away from it. I think the biggest mistake would be to shut it off. Amen. So we're not what we will be, but we're going to grow. And you know what? I'm not saying we made any mistakes or anything, but when we do make mistakes and we do it wrong, God's grace is so big. He'll just wrap us up and he'll pull us in. But we, we can't shy away from what God wants to do tangibly in our midst. You know, he wants to change bodies to make them heal. He wants to change hearts, give us a new heart, a new mind. He wants to empower us to be a witness. He wants each and every one of you to be able to lay hands on people you meet on the street. And do Rich, you, you do some street praying, don't you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've prayed for people in stores before. I mean, it, it's, it's out of this world because, you know, they're so used to... Uh, uh, you know, they prejudge church in so many ways. And so they may not come to church, but you show them the love of God right out there in the store. People almost always say yes if you offer to pray. Usually they'll offer, they'll start crying or something because they're so touched that somebody cares enough to see them and just say, hey, can I pray for you? And just spend a few minutes talking. Preston, you have, you have that. So... I just want to, I just want to kind of let you know where my heart was, you know, with the things that we're moving into. Wasn't it sweet this morning? Mm-hmm. The presence of God was just very sweet, very real, very tangible. I wanted to read this to you. Romans 8, starting with verse 18. If you have a Bible, I'll give you a minute to open up to that. Um, there are so many things that come rushing together 
in the book of Romans, especially in the chapter 8. But he says this, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So you see two time periods. You see the present time and a future time where there is a glory going to be revealed to us. So we're waiting for something. We're presently waiting for a future time. For the eagerly awaiting creation waits for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. Okay? The creation, this planet, and everything in it is waiting until you are revealed. Until you step into the glory that God has for you as a son of God. Amen. God has placed this world under man. He's going to keep his plan. And you're going to rule this world with the glory of God. And the creation is eagerly waiting for you to get your act together. <laughs> the eagerly awaiting creation waits for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. See, not only are you redeemed, all of creation is going to be redeemed. That's God's plan. That's why he talks about the new heavens and the new earth. All of creation will be redeemed. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And I know I can't know anything about childbirth, so I'm not going to pretend like I do. But I did hold her hand for 20 hours of labor. I've seen it as an observer. Creation is groaning because something is needing to be brought into the world. The renewed creation. And not only that, but we also, also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit. So we have a taste of what's coming in the Spirit. We have a first fruit. The first fruit, you know, when they would bring a first fruit offering, it was the first fruits in that field. They would present it to God, and they would offer it and burn, or however they did. If you're an expert in Hebrew law, you will know. Um, but they bring a sampling of what their whole field is full of. It's the same thing. Do you get it? So they bring a first fruit because they're expecting the rest. So the first fruits that we have here is a sampling of the fullness of what's coming. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing. Uh, not only that, we ourselves having the first fruits of His Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoptions as sons and daughters, the redemption of our body. See, salvation is past, present, and future. I have been saved. I've entered into the kingdom. I've been rescued from the domain of darkness. I've stepped into the light. Into his, I've been born again. But there's a progression too, right? There's a, a, a continual growing in holiness as the Spirit works in us. And then there's a future salvation, which is the redemption of our bodies. The resurrection. So we're waiting eagerly for this. Uh, for in hope we have been saved. Isn't that interesting? In hope we have been saved. We're looking for a future salvation, but we already have been saved. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, through perseverance we wait eagerly for it. So we're waiting for something. Now in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. In the same way as the 
earth is groaning, creation is groaning, the spirit inside of us is is groaning through us. For we do not know what to pray for as we should, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. There is a groaning in every one of us that is longing for that which is coming. And that is not you. That's the Spirit of God in you. That groaning, that yearning came into you with the Spirit of God. It's God who's in you groaning, saying, God, bring this thing to pass. Bring this thing now. Crying out, what's what's the word? The Maranatha means, our Lord, come. We're crying out within us. Lord, bring that now. But there is a first fruit. There is a sampling of that now that we can enjoy. Amen? So I just wanted to, to share that a little bit and make sure that we're all on the same page. You know, as, as God starts um, uh, doing different things among us. Uh, again, if I give you the money, you may jump. You may laugh, dance. You may cry, whatever. The jumping is not the spirit. The money I'm giving you represents the Spirit. Does that make sense? The presence of God tangibly here, that is the manifestation of the Spirit. Our reaction to that may be different. But the Spirit is something that we can all sense and be aware of, right? So, let's get into our sermon today. (laughs) Last week I talked about how power and authority work together, right? And I brought a policeman here so that he can demonstrate. <laughs> I'm not paying attention, is he? Oh, I gotcha. I brought a policeman to demonstrate authority today. Remember your line? <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I said when a policeman pulls up behind you and hits those blue lights, right? You know that feeling that you get. Oh, look. First thing you check your speed. Was I speeding? What was I doing? <laughs> what I do? Why does he want me? I hope he goes around me. I hope he wants that guy. Um, but he has the authority to pull you over. And I'm going to guess that everybody in this room would respect that authority and stop. But if for some reason you chose not to stop, do those lights have the ability to make you stop? Not the lights, but does he? Yeah. Because what he does, he's got a big car, he's got a gun, he's got a bunch of friends, and they will all get together, and they will surround you, and wreck into you, and push you off the road, and make you stop. Because not only does he have the authority, he has the ability, he has the power to make it happen. So you respect the authority, but if you don't respect the authority, he has the ability to make it happen. Now at the cross, Jesus took the sin of the world into himself. As our substitute. He took the abuse that would later be credited to us as healing. He suffered the torment that would be make, make for our peace. All of this gave us the right to become children of God. John 1.12 But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So we have the right to now approach God. He has the right to reach out to us. But what makes this all possible is the fact that Jesus went to the right hand of the Father, and he is working out in our lives everything that he died to provide. Mm -hmm. Right? Hebrews 7, 
24 and 25. <clears throat> Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, and if you've been here over the last month, you would know that Hebrews is uh, comparing the Old Testament priesthood to the priesthood of Jesus. The Old Testament priesthood, they couldn't continue forever because the, the temple worship went on for generation after generation after generation. So they were limited because somebody would die and a new generation would have to come up and be the priest. But Jesus, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is also able to save forever those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You see, right now, presently, Jesus is working at the right hand of the Father. He is making intercession for us. He has an ongoing, continual priesthood, where he is continually drawing people into salvation. And he can do this forever. There will be no end to his priesthood. He's the eternal high priest. What he started when he walked on the earth, he's now continuing at the right hand of the Father. That's why last week I talked about, you remember the miracle of the beggar at the gate beautiful in the book of Acts? A chapter and a half is given to this miracle of a cripple getting healed. And I said, why is this miracle so important? And the reason the miracle was so important was because this was the very first miracle recorded that was done by the apostles after Jesus went to the right hand of the Father. It answered the question forever. Will Jesus' ministry continue now that he's ascended? And that first miracle said, yes, absolutely, yes. And when you read through the book of Acts, you just see it increasing and increasing and increasing, miracle after miracle after miracle, to the, to the point where they just say things like they did in the Gospels. And they all were healed. And they brought all the sick, and they all were healed. I mean, how many is that? That's not just one, one cripple. That's like, who knows how many came in a multitude in a city back then. But they all got healed. So, there's an interesting verse. Everybody knows the verse uh, about, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. But we hardly ever quote the verse that comes right before it. It's 2 Corinthians 5.16. Read this verse with me. Very good. 2 Corinthians 5.16. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one by the flesh. Even though we have known Christ by the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. That's like a tongue twister, isn't it? <laughs> I really like it in the classic King James. It's like, henceforth, no, we know man. <laughs> it's, really, it's, really, it's really fun to say. <laughs> if you need a good game for the youth, a tongue twister. Second Corinthians 5.16 in the classic King James. Yeah. So I, I uh, looked it up. In a couple different translations. You know, sometimes I like to look at words. You go to your... First thing you want to do is go to the... the you know, on, on the tablets and phones now, you have the little app where you can hit the button and see the Greek word behind it and the definition. The problem with that is, though, you can get into definition shopping if you're not real careful. You, you just find the one you like the best, and then you say, hey, this is what it means. But So what I did, I looked it up in a couple of different translations. I looked it up in the NIV, the Living Bible, Holman, and the CEV. Listen to how they read. So from now on... We regard no one from a worldly point of view. Okay? After the flesh, worldly point of view. Living Bible. So we have stopped evaluating, evaluating others from a human point of view. The Holman, it's Christian Standard Bible, says, From now on, then, we do not know anyone in a purely human way. In the CEV, we are careful not to judge people by what they seem to be. 
Because you look at somebody and they seem to be a certain way, but you don't really know just by looking at them from a purely human way. Because you've got to take into account the Spirit of God working in them. You've got to take into account the potential they have in Christ. You've got to take into account the callings that God has placed on their lives. Because if we just keep everybody uh, limited to a natural perspective, what's, our, what's my prayer every time I start? I'm like, God, come in this place and do what only you can do. Because I'm limited as a human, but I'm not limited in him because the spirit in me is not limited. The spirit in you is not limited. The spirit among us is not limited. So we need to recognize that we are carriers of the glory of God and not limit one another and evaluate one another by purely human perspective, right? So, you know, what does it mean? You know, you know how people look. You know how they act. You know what I'm saying? You, you, uh, you maybe have related to them in some way. Maybe they're the people who bag your groceries or bring your food to the table. And you make judgments about them. But that's not fair. You don't know them. You don't know what they've gone through. You don't know what God's working in them. You just don't know. So we can't look at one another from a purely physical point of view. You've got to see God's potential in them. That's why, for as long as Rinkum and I have been married, we would, we agreed this. We don't always do it perfectly, but we said we are not. We are going to give one another the grace to change, to grow and change, because it's really easy, especially if you ever get into an argument, which we've never ever been in an argument ever. But it's really easy when you get in an argument to say, "Oh, you're always like that. That's what you've been doing since I met you. <laughs> You'll never change, right?" But we need to change. We need to grow in the grace of God. Until we look like Jesus, it must have hit home. I see smiles. <laughs> we need the grace to grow and change. And not, until we look like Jesus, we need to change. We need to grow. But what we want to do is we want to give one another the freedom to grow. And when they start growing, don't put them back in their old box. We have a way of keeping people in nice little boxes so we can manipulate them and press their buttons and control them, right? Amen. <laughs> we need to give one another the grace to grow. Thank you for that. Amen. <laughs> so the people who knew Jesus after the flesh, they could probably say, you know, Hey, Jesus from Nazareth, didn't your mom used to go there and grind grain with his mom? <laughs> Did he ever come by um, after the flesh, right? Um, wasn't wasn't a... Wasn't Jesus' mom the one who, who, uh, who organized your wedding? <laughs> she didn't order enough wine. <laughs> or, or, um, what's the, uh, you know, maybe, you remember when Jesus came to Nazareth? Yeah, my cousin was there and he, they, he went out and when he was preaching out there in the desert and he went up and he actually got to meet him. Touched his, touched his cloak and everything and that knee problem never came back. You know, they could touch him. They could handle him, and that was okay. That's what he came to do. But they didn't see necessarily. They were all questioning: Is this the Messiah? The Messiah? You know, if, if the Messiah comes, we're not going to know where he's from, right? We know where he's from. He can't be the Messiah. But if he, who else would do more miracles than this? If this is not the Messiah, I mean, then who is this, right? They were knowing him after the flesh. It's exactly what happened when Jesus went to his hometown. Look at uh, Mark six, chapter. Chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. And, and many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man see these things? Where did he learn these things? 
And what is this wisdom that has been given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. Is this not the carpenter? Look, is this not the carpenter? The son of Mary and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And what's the next line? They took offense at him. <laughs> it's real easy to get offended with one another when we know and evaluate and judge you after the flesh. I have to look at you through the eyes of God to not get offended. No, but really, looking at people through the eyes of God, you will keep you from being offended because you realize that by grace, you know God has something for them. They've been made in the image of God. They are carrying the glory of God in them. They have a potential. They have a calling of God. And we need to evaluate one another after through the eyes of the gospel, through the eyes of God, through the eyes of love, and not keep people in boxes and be offended at them all the time. We need to have that grace, extend that grace to one another. That's good. The point is this. They all knew Jesus after the flesh. And like I said, it was okay. He came in the flesh. But there was more to Jesus than just his flesh. When the movie The Passion came out, anybody remember that movie? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I didn't go see it on purpose. It was just me. All my friends told me how awesome it was, how realistic it was, and how they beat him and all that. And uh, all the preachers talked about how good Mel Gibson did on that movie. And I think every youth group had to play those clips over and over and over. I've seen, I've seen the clips. But on purpose, I did not go see it for a very specific reason. I didn't want Mel Gibson to build the image of the crucifixion in my mind and in my heart. I wanted God to build that image through the Spirit, through reading the Gospels, through reading Hebrews, through reading the rest of the Bible, through reading the prophecies in the Old Testament. I didn't want to, when I'm thinking about Jesus on the cross, think of Mel Gibson. I mean, it maybe was accurate. But see, Mel Gibson could show me a man carrying a cross up a hill, bloody. But God could show me a man carrying my sins. Mel Gibson could show me a man beaten to a pulp. But God could show me a man taking my sicknesses and carrying my sorrows. Right? Yeah. See, we need to evaluate Jesus from a spiritual point of view, not a physical point of view. Jesus is exalted. Let me show you a picture of the exalted Jesus. Go to Revelation. Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And after turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and wrapped around the chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been heated to a glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. His right hand, in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one. I was dead, and behold, 
I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Amen. Do you know who wrote this? John the Beloved. This is the one who was so comfortable with Jesus that he would lean back on him at the table. You know what I'm talking about? This is the one who wrote about there is no fear in love because perfect love drives out fear and fear is torment. Okay, this is the one who said Jesus loves me and then he sees him and bam, he is down like a dead man. This is Jesus at the right hand of the Father. This is working for you. This is the Jesus that you serve. And I know we, we do a lot of things because it's true. I'm a friend of God. I'm a friend of God, right? And I hear people say, oh, Daddy God. I know I know the verses, you know, Abba, Father, you know, and we, we, we act like we're really close to him. But I think nobody here is as close as John was to him. Mm-hmm. When John sees him in his glory, boom, he's, he's down for the count. This is the Jesus we serve. Do you remember when Saul met him on the road to Damascus? Yes. What happened? Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus, that if he found any belonging to the way, meaning any Christians who worship Jesus, whether men or women, he might bring them in shackles to Jerusalem. Now, as he was traveling, it happened that as he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed all around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? He didn't know who he was talking to. But I'm sure he wished he didn't have those court orders to to go attack Jesus' followers in his pocket right now. (laughs) When he says, I am... Jesus, I'm the one you're persecuting. Well, that's heavy. He didn't say, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? He said, no, why are you persecuting me? He takes it very personal. Why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He said it again. But get up and enter the city. It will be told to you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. Did God blind him? Absolutely, that's what happened. He could see nothing, and leading him by the hand, they brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was out sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now I've heard a lot of people say, the Holy Spirit is a gentleman. He won't ever do anything, will make you feel uncomfortable or anything you don't want him to do. But if that were true, he would have met Saul out there on the road to Damascus wearing a tuxedo. And he would have said, Excuse me, sir, can I help you off your horse? (laughs) That's not exactly how the story went, was it? No. Boom! On the ground. Presence of God. And we're going to share in that same glory. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven. Okay? When we were saved, we became citizens of heaven. Past tense, our citizenship, since the time we've been saved, is in heaven. So now we are citizens in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await for a Savior, 
future, right? We're presently citizens of heaven, but we're waiting from heaven for the Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ, who will what? Who will transform the body of our lowly condition into conformity with his glorious body. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is crazy. By the exertion of his power, that he has even to subject all things to himself. This is the Christian hope. This is the resurrection. This is what the early church believed. I think sometimes we, we've reduced it to, you know, I need to serve Jesus so that I go to heaven when I die. But what's going to actually happen is a renewal of all creation. And we're going to step into that glory that Jesus himself enjoys right now. We're going to participate with that. And what is there in the future? We are actually participating with, to a degree, right now in the present time. Listen to Ephesians chapter 3, also verse 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, what? According to the power that works within us. Right now, that power of God is working within us. And through that power that's working within us, he can do, even right now, presently, beyond what we can ask or even imagine. I've learned how to do this. You know, People have taught over the years, you know, because, because of this verse, if you can imagine it, God can do it. Your imagination is the limitation because he can do beyond what we ask or imagine. I've just learned to say, God, do, do something more than I can imagine. Set my faith to let him flow as freely in what he wants to do. Because quite frankly, some of the things, you know, that I need in life, direction and things working for me, I can't even imagine yet. I don't really know what I need. So I'm like, I set my faith to the Lord. Work beyond what I can even imagine. Bring something I don't expect. I know he's working for me. According to that power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever Amen. See, the Christian life is actually a life connected to God by the Spirit. And we are partakers of that future life in this present time. In Hebrews chapter 6, uh, chapter 6, starting with verse 4, some, some denominations don't like this verse because it looks like it, it's always contested whether you can fall away once you've been saved. There's a doctrine, once saved, always saved, and uh, people get into that. But I don't want to get into that right now. What I want to do is just use this verse, this passage, to describe, to see how the Bible describes what a Christian is. Okay? So listen to this. It says, It is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Okay. Listen to this. A Christian is one who has been enlightened. Amen. There's some kind of understanding about who God is and what Jesus has done. Somehow the, the, they, they approach Jesus with a simple faith as a child. He opened their hearts to understand the gospel. There's enlightenment. They have tasted of the heavenly gift. Gift of salvation, gift of the Spirit, they've tasted of it. And they have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. That means they're sharers in the Spirit. You know when you take a, a, a branch and you graft it into another tree? That same sap that's in that tree flows through that branch now. 
It's shared, it's commingled. We're partakers of the Holy Spirit. That's what a Christian is. His life flows through us. And in and out of it, and ours flows through Him. I don't understand it all, but we're partakers of the Holy Spirit. And listen to this, and have tasted the good word of God, the living word, the promises of God, the incorruptible seed, right? You're born again by that incorruptible seed. And listen, and the powers of the age to come. A Christian is one who has tasted of the powers of the age to come in this present age. God is working in us right now in this present age. Does that describe your relationship with God? Because it can. The, the limitation is not on God's part. It's just up to us to step into it and receive it, anticipate it, believe it. So how do we get there? The same way anyone gets there. We call upon the name of the Lord. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay. There are four core beliefs that the Assemblies of God churches hold. And uh, most Pentecostal churches hold these. They're not. They're, they're pretty, pretty basic. One, salvation. Two, divine healing. Three, baptism in the Holy Spirit. Four, the second coming of Jesus Christ. That means that Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is our healer. Jesus is the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is coming again. That's what that means. We've already looked at this verse in Hebrews when I started. Hebrews 7, 24 and 25. It says, Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is also able to save forever those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So why do we need saved? I mean, these words, saved, salvation, they get real religious in a church, don't they? But if you were on a boat, you hit an iceberg, and it's going to sink, and the captain says, in three hours, it's going down, and we're all lost, what you need at that point is a savior. You probably wouldn't call it a savior. You would probably say a rescuer. But same thing. It's exactly what you need. You need a savior. First Timothy 1.15 says that it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost. Galatians chapter 1, 3 and 4 says this, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of God and our Father. We need to be rescued from something. We need to be rescued from our sins. We need to be rescued from this present evil age. Amen. See, I like that word, rescue. It's not as religious as Savior. But we need save. We need rescue. We need a Savior. We need a rescuer. See, this present age is destined for destruction. Remember John 3.16? We all quote John 3.16, but we don't usually quote the verses right after. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that anyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. He's on a rescue mission. The one who believes in him is not judged, and the one who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come into the light, so that his deeds will not be exposed. 
but the one who practices the truth comes into the light so that his deeds will be revealed as having been performed in God. John never gives you a place to quit in his gospel. That's why it's very hard to preach from John, because his narratives go several chapters long, and he's like, where do you quit with John? But listen to what he says. He says, the one who believes in him is not judged. The one who does not believe has been judged already. That's because this present evil world, this present generation that we lived in is already slated for destruction. Remember what we read? The whole creation has been subjected to decay. Why? In hopes that it could be restored and renewed. This is a sinking ship, folks, and that's why we need saved. That's what salvation is. is a rescue operation. But what does it say? Romans 10. Romans 10, uh, 8. What does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. So I just want I know pretty much everybody here, I believe that you've experienced this, but is there anybody who would like to call on the name of the Lord? Amen. Let's go ahead. Let's call on the name of the Lord. Always. Always, yeah.